Well, we know that prayer has always been central to the life of God's people uh, through all the ages. Uh, We also know that we who live under the new covenant, we have great privileges in prayer that even our Old Testament brothers and sisters didn't enjoy. We have the privilege of being able to pray in Jesus' name. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he said to his disciples that from now on, you will pray in my name as you have not done before. That is a great privilege. We also know that our Lord Jesus Christ is exalted in heaven, in his resurrected body, and is praying for us. What a privilege that is, that even as we offer up our prayers on earth, We know that Christ is praying for us in heaven. And also after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has been poured out in fuller measure upon us as the new covenant people. And the Spirit is the one who helps us as we pray. We have that great assistance. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit helps us. So we have great privileges as a new covenant people as we pray. And yet... We know that we receive such great instruction from the Old Testament as to how we ought to pray before the Lord. And the Psalms are great guides and inspirations and uh, great light to help us in our prayers. Now, Psalm 119, you might say, is one big giant prayer to the Lord. This is the single biggest chapter in all of Scripture. And really it is, in some sense, one big long prayer to the Lord. And it helps us to know how to pray. But here in these stanzas that we are considering this morning, we see the psalmist focusing on prayer in a special way. And it's good for us to think for a moment before we dig into the details of this text, to think about our psalmist. Now, we don't know who it is. With any certainty, we don't know who wrote this psalm. Uh, But we do know some things about this psalmist from what he tells us throughout these 176 verses. And one of the things he tells us is that he is a sojourner. And that indicates that this psalmist is away from home. Uh, He's not settled. Uh, So this means that this psalmist is not living in comfort, in prosperity, in peace, in the promised land. On that plot of ground that God had given to his ancestors. We know that God had told his people in the law of Moses that if they were rebellious against him, that he would judge them in various ways and the worst of the judgments that the Lord had set before his people in the law was that he would expel them from the promised land. And one of the things we see in Psalm 119 is that this psalmist was a rebel against God in his former life. And God had judged him, brought him through a great affliction, and that great affliction was apparently being driven out of the land. He is a sojourner. He's living in a foreign land. And this is part of the reason why the psalmist, throughout this psalm, talks so much about his suffering. He's living not amidst his own people. He's living amidst Gentile pagans. And this is important to note. 
in many ways for interpreting this psalm. And yet, as we think about the psalmist talking about prayer, it is worth our reflection. Because remember, this psalmist is not praying out of a sort of a sense of ease. He's not praying with his mind at peace. He's not praying with his life all in order. He is praying in the midst of suffering and affliction. You remember that the temple in Jerusalem at this time, the temple in Jerusalem was to be the center of the religious life of God's people. God's temple was a house of prayer. That is where they were especially to commune with their God. But our psalmist has been driven away from the land. He has probably not been to the temple for years. He is praying from a distance. He is praying undoubtedly with a sense of God's absence in a, in a, in a very important way. And brothers and sisters, the New Testament tells us that we are sojourners in this world. All of us as New Covenant Christians are sojourners. Even if you have lived in the same house, even if you've lived in the same town for decades, you are a sojourner if you are a Christian because you are not in heaven, because you have not yet reached the new creation. You are not living in your permanent home. You are not living where your heart really ought to be. We pray as sojourners in this world, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of hardship. And there's much to learn from this psalmist as he prays in a very similar spiritual situation, despite all the differences that our psalmist uh, would have experienced uh, from us today. So with that, let us look first at the first of these two stanzas, the Kof stanza, verses 145 through 152. Now, in these first four verses, verses 145 through 148, we see the psalmist really talking about his practice of prayer. It's not so much that he's praying here as that he is describing his prayer. Uh, one thing to note about how he describes his prayer is the very verbs that he uses in the first two verses. Verse 145, with my whole heart I cry. Verse 146, I call to you. Actually, in verse 147, he uses that word cry again. I cry for help. These very verbs are an indication of what prayer is. Prayer is not simply communicating some information to God. Like sending God an email, sending God a message. It's telling him some things you'd like him to do for you this day. Prayer is calling out to the Lord. It is crying out to God. It is something that emerges from within. In prayer, true prayer, we bear our souls before the Lord. Now, different, different of us, uh, we are different people, we have different personalities. Some of us are, are probably very comfortable with talking about what is going on inside of our hearts to other people. 
Maybe some of us here make other people uncomfortable by talking about very private things to others. Others of us are very reserved. We don't like to talk about what's going on inside of us uh, to others. And I guess it's fine. We have different personalities. It makes the world more interesting that way. But when it comes to the Lord and when it comes to prayer, there is no point of being reserved. The Lord knows everything in your heart and mind anyway. You can't hide anything from the Lord. And the Lord wants His people to open their hearts to Him. He delights when His people call out to Him from the depths of their being. When they cry out to Him, even in their distress, especially in their distress. So that's one thing that the psalmist helps us to see in these opening verses. But we also see in these opening verses that prayer is to be holistic. And there are a couple of things that I mean by that. One thing, uh, one way you can see this is, again, back in the opening verse, verse 145, the psalmist says, With my whole heart I cry. Prayer is to emerge from a, a wholeheartedness. Now, if we, had, if we were looking at this entire psalm, we would see that the psalmist uses in other places in the psalm this phrase, the whole heart, my whole heart. In fact, already in the second verse of this psalm, he uses this phrase. And ordinarily, the psalmist uses this idea of the whole heart to describe his devotion to God. We are not to be, we wouldn't even use the term devotion. We are not to serve God with half of our heart. We're not to give half of our energy to the Lord. The Lord desires everything that we have. We are to serve him and obey his word with our whole hearts. And the psalmist indicates here that prayer emerges from that holistic devotion. Prayer is not something separate from the rest of our lives. Prayer is something that emerges from that holistic devotion to the Lord. At least it ought to. And you can also see this holistic character of prayer in verses 147 and 148. Uh, prayer is holistic in terms of time, notice what the psalmist says. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. Verse 148, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night. So you see how the psalmist is playing on this imagery of morning and night, of light and darkness. The psalmist is saying whether it's, whether it's early in the day, whether it's late in the day, I am praying before the Lord. We might think here of what Paul says in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he says, pray continually. It's not quite as poetic as the way the psalmist puts it, but it's briefer. Pray continually. And of course, we know that the psalmist, or we know that Paul doesn't mean this literally. We are not literally praying 24 hours a day. There are other things in life that draw our attention very rightly. But what Paul is communicating, what the psalm is communicating, is that our lives are to be marked by prayer. 
This is who we are as Christians. Birds fly. Fish swim. Scorpions sting. Christians pray. This is who we are. If, if you're asked to, to describe somebody, right? if you're somebody that you know well, and you were asked to you know, pick out one thing that describes that person, you wouldn't, you wouldn't choose something that this person does once in a while or a character trait that this person displays every, every so often. Right? You would choose something that marks this person on a regular basis. And one of the things then that the psalmist is communicating is that something that characterizes Christians is that they pray. This is who we are. And in this sense, our prayers are to be holistic. They are part of our, of our lives. It is, you might say, prayer is a way of life for us as believers. Well, these opening four verses, you might say, set a high bar. Uh, they describe prayer in a way that is quite impressive. And as we think about our own practice of prayer, we might feel a little bit inadequate Perhaps that we don't measure up to the psalmist's uh, standards. And so as we come to the next verse, 149, verse 149, uh, it, is, it is so fitting that the psalmist reminds us of what he says here. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. You see what the psalmist reminds us of here. Yes, uh, we are to be characterized by prayer. We are to be zealous in prayer, wholehearted in prayer. And yet the reason that the Lord hears us when we pray to Him is not because our prayers are so, are so pious. It's not because our prayers are so earnest. It's not because we pray so frequently. The reason that God hears us when we pray is because of His grace. We can never pray so much that we earn God's answers. No, it is because the Lord is gracious to us that he hears us. This is why I read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10. There, the author of Hebrews says so beautifully that the Lord Jesus Christ, through his, through his flesh, through his broken body, has opened up a new and living way for us into the very presence of God. This is why we may, draw, we may draw before him with confidence. We pray in the name of Christ. And it is only because of his work that we can come with boldness, knowing that he hears us. And so the psalmist says, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. It is the Lord's love that gives him confidence. Perhaps it sounded a little bit odd or unexpected to you that the psalmist also said, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. We might be accustomed to think that if the Lord dealt with us in justice, well, he would actually, he would actually punish us. He would actually give us death because of our sins. But it is interesting that the psalmist thinks that God's justice is a source of confidence in our prayer. You might think of it this way. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has offered himself up for you, 
because of his perfect work, satisfying his justice, it is just for God to hear you when you pray to him. I put it negatively. It would be unjust for God not to hear you if you come to him in the name of Christ with faith in him. That gives us another great source of confidence in prayer. We may come to him and know that he is just to hear us. And then in these next verses, verses 150 and 151, the psalmist plays on this idea of distance, nearness, and farness. Now, I said a a moment ago at the beginning of the sermon, I encourage you to think of this psalmist as a sojourner, as he tells us he is. He is far away from the promised land, apparently. He is far away from the temple, the house of prayer. And so this psalmist must have had a certain sense of God's distance from him. In a certain sense, God was far away. And that is true of us as well. I mean, we recognize that our Lord Jesus Christ is not physically with us. Our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. That is the place, especially of God's glory, of God's, this God's dwelling place. When we pray to God, there is a sense in which we pray to God who is far away. And you see the psalmist in verse 150, he says, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. God's temple was far away, but there was someone who was close to him, but it was evil people, persecutors. They were drawing near. And you see how the psalmist is very poetic here. He's He says, uh, these persecutors draw near, but they are far from God's law. These are frightening people. Wicked people. They are pressing in on the psalmist. And he cries out to God. And see what he says in verse 151. But you are near, O Lord. You are near. In a sense, God is far away from the psalmist. His temple is far away. And yet, as the psalmist prays in faith, he knows that God, in another important sense, is really not far. God does draw near to his people. And it's true of us. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ is physically far from us. We are not yet in that heavenly sanctuary. We are worshiping in an earthly sanctuary that is far from the heavenly sanctuary. And yet, as we pray, as we pray in faith, God promises to draw near to his people. As we pray, as we worship, God is close to us in the most intimate way that we can know him and have fellowship with him while we are still here in this present age. And that should give us great confidence as evil people press in against us. Well, as we finish this, uh, the first of these two stanzas that are before us, I would just notice, uh, note for you two things that the psalmist says about God's word. One of the things that, uh, probably the best thing, uh, the, the, the thing for which we know Psalm 119 best, other than the fact that it's very long, is that it, it talks about God's word, about God's law in almost every verse. And note the two things that the psalmist says at the end of this cough stanza. 
he says, all your commandments are true, verse 151. And he says, 152, long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. God's word is true, and God's word endures forever. And those are two important things to know about God's word. We live in a world that is full of lies. We live in a world in which we're not even sure who's telling us the truth or who's telling us falsehood. But we know in the midst of such a world that God's word is true. And it's not just temporarily true. It's not as if it's true today, but something else might be true tomorrow. God's word is true and he has founded it forever. God's word will always be reliable. We can always count on it. And so with that, we move to the second of these stanzas, the Raish stanza, verses 153 to 160. And the psalmist really has not left his reflections on prayer as we come to this stanza. There are all sorts of connections among these stanzas in Psalm 119. And if you're studying this psalm on your own, uh, it's good to be alert for that and to, to keep your eyes open for these themes that, that, uh, that connect the various parts of this psalm. But what you might see at the opening of this new stanza is that the psalmist is not so much describing his practice of prayer. That's really what he was doing at the opening of the previous stanza. He was describing himself at prayer. Here he is, well, he's just praying. We, we get to see him at prayer. And so he begins verse 153, look on me or look on my affliction and deliver me. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. You see how he's making these requests of God. And the thing that should strike us about these prayers is, again, he is praying as a suffering person. He is, well, as the very word that he uses in verse 153, look on my affliction, my affliction. He is praying to God from, uh, from a very difficult circumstances. And in fact, the, very, the, the kind of language he uses at the beginning of verse 154, he says, plead my cause. He's using judicial language. This is the language of the courtroom. He's basically asking God to be his lawyer. Plead my case. I mean, it might actually, it might be very literally true that the psalmist has been dragged into court by wicked people. That's very possible. Maybe it's, maybe it's more metaphorical that he's asking God to plead his cause against evil people in some other area of life. But you get the sense that this is, he's a man in trouble. He's a man that's really suffering. In fact, three times in this stanza, in this stanza alone, three times he asked for God to give him life. I mean, he's actually... He's worried, he's worried about losing his life and is pleading for God's help in the midst of that situation. And in fact, the, the next verse, 155, kind of adds to this, this kind of aura of, of suffering by saying salvation is far from the wicked. Right? These wicked people are dragging him into court and salvation is far from them. 
this should sound familiar from the previous stanza. The previous stanza, he said, they are far from your law, O God, these wicked people. Now he's saying these wicked people are far from your salvation. Right? These people who are drawing close to him are far from anything that has to do with God. And so the opening three verses of this stanza, he draws us into his affliction. And yet in these next two verses, which are the middle verses of this stanza, verses 156 and 157, the psalmist does something beautiful. I mean, this psalmist is a very skilled poet. And he speaks about God's salvation in the midst of suffering in ways that ought to give us all great encouragement. So in verse 156, the way the ESV translates it, great is your mercy, O Lord. And the, what that communicates is that God's mercy is really big. Great is your mercy, O Lord. And theologically, that's true. That's absolutely true. God's mercy is really, really big. But you see, that's not exactly the psalmist's point here. The psalmist speaks in the plural here. A, a more literal translation would be, not great is your mercy, but many are your mercies, O Lord. The psalmist's precise point is not that God's mercy is one really big thing. The point is that God's mercies are so many. God's mercies are uncountable. The psalmist's point here is similar to what we find in the middle of Lamentations 3. Now, if you're familiar with Lamentations, Lamentations on the whole is a very dark book reflecting on the judgment of God. But in the middle of Lamentations, there's this beautiful, this is like this, this glimmer of light that emerges in the middle of Lamentations. It's very beautiful. And one of the things that Lamentations 3 says is, uh, uh, your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You see what, the, what Lamentations' point is there, is that God's mercies they just keep coming to us, one after another, day by day, morning by morning. That's our psalmist's point too. And the reason why I, I emphasize that is because the psalmist uses the same word for many in the next verse. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. So I hope you can see what the psalmist is doing here. It's, a, it's a, just a very... It, it's, it's a great poetic device, you might say. The psalmist is facing many persecutors, facing many adversaries. But you know what? The mercies of God are just as many as the evil people who are opposing him. And this should be a great encouragement for all of us. It can seem in life that our troubles, our afflictions... The things that make us anxious, that make us fearful, that make us discouraged, they can seem to be so many. And yet the Word of God comes and says, no matter how many troubles you face, no matter how many things would make you discouraged, there are more mercies of God to meet you and to comfort you 
and to encourage you. Many are God's mercies. They are new every morning for us. And there's one other thing uh, in our text that I wish to uh, point out. One other thing that emerges here as an important theme in this Raish stanza. Uh, in verses 158 and 159, you might notice how they begin. I look at the faithless with disgust. And at 159, consider how I love your precepts. Uh, now, both of these verses begin with the same, the same word. And in fact, verse 153, the first verse of this stanza also begins with the, the same Hebrew word. A Hebrew word for look or to see. Now, again, I want to point out something that has to do with sort of the poetic character of this psalm. Uh, so, Psalm 119 is divided into 22 stanzas. And they, they each have a name. So we've been looking at the Koth stanza and the Resh stanza. So the names of these stanzas are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the way that the psalmist arranges the psalm is that, okay, for example, in our Resh stanza, eight verses in this stanza, every verse in the Hebrew, every verse begins with the letter Resh. So one of the common Hebrew words that begins with this letter is the word for see. And so the psalmist takes advantage of that. And so he begins three of these eight verses with this same word, the word for see. And this is an indication that this is an important theme. The theme of seeing is, has some importance in this stanza. Now, the first time the psalmist uses this word, verse 153, he's telling God to look. Look on my affliction and deliver me. And then in verse 159, second to last verse of the stanza, consider, he's talking to God again, consider or see how I love your precepts. Give me life. So one of the things the psalmist is helping us to understand is that in our prayers, we ask God to see us. And that in itself, it's only by faith that we can do that. If we were not people of faith, if we were not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you want God to see you? If you were not in Christ, you would, you would want to be like those people in the book of Revelation who were calling for the mountains to fall upon them, to hide themselves from God. You don't want God to see you if you are not in Christ. But in Christ, this is one of the privileges we have. We want God to see us because we know when God looks at us, he looks at us in mercy. He looks at us in grace. He will help us. But also note that the second of these three occurrences of this word for see is in 158. And here the psalmist is describing his own looking, his own seeing. He says one, in verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Now, perhaps it strikes us momentarily that uh, looking, at, uh, looking at people with disgust seems a little uncharitable, seems a little unkind. Ordinarily, we don't teach our children to look at other people with disgust. So what is the psalmist doing here? Well, you might think of it this way. 
There's a temptation that we all have to be envious of the wicked. Some of you, you younger people here, sometimes you might look, if you have any non-Christian friends, you might look at them sometimes and think, boy, they can have fun that we can't have. Right? They can enjoy life in certain ways that we can't because, well, we're Christians. Right? We can't do things. And sometimes your parents, we who are adults, we, we, we have those same temptations. We look at wicked people and we're envious. They can succeed in certain ways in life. They can be prosperous in certain ways because they're willing to do certain things that we're not willing to do or to say certain things that we're not willing to say. What the psalmist is helping us to see here is that we ought not to look at the wicked with envy. We're not to be jealous of the wicked. But we are to find the ways of the wicked disgusting. We are to be turned off by wickedness. There is nothing, brothers and sisters, there is nothing attractive about evil. Do not let yourself be enticed by it. Do not let your hearts be drawn, even, even, even for a moment, to the ways of evil. So no, we are not to be unkind to others. We are not to be self-righteous before others. But there is a sense in which we look at the wicked and a feeling of disgust should rise in our hearts because evil Evil should be so unattractive to us. Let us pray that we would have hearts that find evil unattractive. And with that, we come to the end of our text. And I simply point out in verse 160 that the psalmist ends this stanza in almost the same way that he ends the previous stanza. I pointed out at the end of the cough stanza that he says that God's word is true and that it lasts forever. Well, notice how our... Our stanza ends in verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And that's a good way for us to end. Brothers and sisters, we are to be a praying people. A people who pray with confidence, knowing that God is merciful to his people who pray in faith. And we pray according to the word of God. That is our guide in prayer. That is our encouragement in prayer. And as we pray according to God's word, we know that that word is true and that it will last forever. May that be our confidence. And so let us now turn to God and pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.